that beginning image of him teaching her to say her name is paid off about four different times in, yeah. in remarkable ways throughout the play. Everyone and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jackson. I'm Jacob. Thanks for joining us for another week, another conversation about another great script. And and since I came to this script, I have been preparing what I wanted to say right now, which is something oh. that we rarely say at the top of episodes. We usually say it at the end when we're like, we ran out of time. This is a play <laughs> that is so good, that is so jam-packed with historical uh, realities with themes, with incredible images, with incredible structural setups and payoffs. There's so much like good stuff in this play that we will be scratching the surface today. And I, I just don't <laughs> usually hedge that much, but I'm concerned because truly this play may be like among the best in terms of just like sheer quality that I've of, of scripts that I've ever read. This play is so good. Yeah, yeah, it has a lot of elements going on in it that are all working together in really great harmony, great stagecraft, great characters, great motivations, great goals, great prop negotiation, all those sorts of things. I agree, we're just not going to get to all of them in this episode. It's um, just it's case- so dramaturgically and structurally sound. It yep. is just like everything is like uh, like iron hard in terms of just like the power and the the sharp lines and the just incredible. I mean, it's just it is so well crafted as a piece of drama. Yeah, strongly motivated action that leads to the next action over and over. Yeah, super good stuff. If you haven't already checked the title of the of the episode today, today we're talking about translations by Brian Friel, and it's exciting to get to turn to this particular play. I was trying to, as I was reading it, I was like, I was trying to remember where I'd read this play for the first time. It's still escaping me. I perhaps read it in a history of theory and theater class a long time ago, but it's it's a beautiful play. Got a lot of great, as we've already gushed about it, um, uh, we'll be gushing about it for the next 45 minutes to 50 minutes or so, and excited to have the chance to talk about it. Yeah, Brian Friel, of course, we've we've done Brian on the podcast before. He's he's sort of the great uh, somebody. I think it was from a, one of the interviews that I was watching in preparation called him the great poet laureate of Ireland. And I mean, he he is to the Irish theater what a figure like Arthur Miller or Eugene O'Neill or Tennessee Williams is to the American theater or August Wilson. And and so it. We're, we're, we're today at a play that is a classic in the same way that Death of a Salesman, that Glass Menagerie, that The Night of the... I mean, these are plays that are so rich in history and culture that we, we don't often do classics of this magnitude on the podcast because they're hard to encapsulate in a 45 to 50 minute conversation. There has been a lot said on them. In, in large part, we do the plays of Brian Friel 
Daniel and other like non-American playwrights because we know that our audience is largely American theater goers. And if you may, you may not have heard of Brian Friel's translations, but I, I'm telling you, this is a play of equal quality and breadth and dramatic imagination to Death of a Salesman, to The Glass. All those plays that you know and love and are, you know, bastions, st- have stable places in the great American plays, this play is every bit of those plays and truthfully more, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, it tracks it tracks an important moment in history. It, it definitely like holds a big. I'll, I'll get to this in a little bit of the, in the context a little bit later, but definitely has some historical significance both in the issue that it's talking about, the moment that it's written in for the characters, but also the moment that it was staged and produced. So yeah, exciting to have the chance to talk about that. But in the category of exciting news, we also want to uh, share. We just got off of the themed month of the season. If you haven't listened to that yet, it was Mistletoe Month. Great conversations all around like holiday themed plays we are going pretty much right into with a little bit of a break but steaming towards another of the hallmarks of the no script season in that we have the special guest episode coming to you in just two short weeks That's right. Not next week, but the week after is going to be the release of our special guest episode featuring Corey Hayes. We'll talk more about Corey and the great work that she's doing when we get there. But Corey is an actor and she was able to play this sort of protagonist role in a play by Lauren Yee called In a Word, which is also a tremendous achievement in dramatic literature. And so we we try to have a very different kinds of guests on this show. And this is a guest who was in, who was, you know, doing the incredible heavy load of acting in a script that we are talking about. And so that is just an incredibly unique perspective to bring to the podcast. It was a fantastic conversation. I just had so much fun talking about this great play with Corey. Can't wait to release that episode to you in just two weeks. Yeah, yeah. So get excited for that. Um, uh, mark your mark your calendars, as it were. And uh, as as you mark those calendars, mark them as well for the nearing end to our season. Don't worry, we will be back quite soon in 2024 with another great season of unscripted conversations about theater's best scripts. But uh, we've got next week, the week after, and then the week following that. Three more episodes in this season, and then we're wrapping up, taking a bit of a holiday break, and we'll be get, catching you again in 2024. Thank you all for listening throughout this season, and excited to continue. Sharing sharing more conversations with you as we go forward. Absolutely. Before we dive into our conversation about translations by Brian Friel, it is time for us to say a hearty thank you to those who support us over on Patreon. Patreon.com slash no script, no underscores, no hyphens. Patreon.com slash no script podcast. It's no script podcast, right? Boy, it's been a minute. No script yeah. podcast. <laughs> That's where you can find us. That's where you can become a supporter of the show. Um, over there, we have lots of little different tiers that sort of how Patreon works. There are different tiers of monthly support that you can choose to offer. Uh, the lowest tier is just a dollar a month, has been a dollar a month since the beginning of our Patreon. We're going to keep that level for the foreseeable future because although it may not feel like a lot to you, a dollar a month, $12 over the course of the year, even that level is just so beneficial to supporting the running of this podcast. We love to do No Script Podcasts. It's a great part of our life. We get to read and talk about great plays like translations 
but it's not free for us to do. There's a huge time commitment to running a weekly podcast in this way. But beyond that, there's also just hard costs of like subscription fees and getting copies of the scripts and all the different things that we need to do to make no script happen in the way that it's happened. The folks on Patreon are supporting us do that. Thank you so much if you're one of those folks. If you're not, please consider it. Please think about it. Check out the Patreon. You can see the different reward tiers over there. But even that dollar a month level, just, just think about giving even that much to support the running of No Script. It's patreon.com slash no script podcast. Hope to see you over there. And now we return to the script. I'm switching it up. <laughs> We return to the script? That seems like something we should have talked about before recording. (laughs) If we were going to change, like, the second most important tagline in all of No Script. (laughs) Just throwing it, throwing it, throwing it loose out in the wild, putting out feelers about it. (laughs) Oh, my. I I have to reflect. I don't know. We'll we'll return to to this at a different time. (laughs) Recover. You prep the synopsis and you think about what I've done. Um, Oh, boy. I'm going to give us just a little bit of context as we start into this conversation. I'm going to kind of kind of skate across uh, Brian Friel a little bit more than I did last time. I think I had the context on him in the previous time as well. You can check out our previous conversation on Dancing with Lunasa if you want a little bit more of a deep dive into Brian Friel. But yeah, like incredibly important Irish playwright, um, writes uh, uh, frequently on, on plays set in Ireland. Let's see, here we go. We got Dancing at Lunasa. We got Molly Sweeney. We've got today's play translations. We got um, uh, many, many, many more plays. I'm just looking at the healer. Faith Healer, Living Quarters, Philadelphia, Here I Come. Lots of uh, just phenomenal plays from Brian Friel around around, uh, Ireland and Irish history and Irish people. Um, he's compared uh, oftentimes with like Samuel Beckett, Arthur Miller, Harold Pinter, Tennessee Williams. He's he's in that sort of echelon of of playwrights, and and his work is is very important both in the American and the Irish theater. Um, this particular play, Translations, um, is a three act play. Uh, it's written in 1980, and it was first performed at the Guild Hall in Derry in Northern Ireland in September of 1980. Um, that production, uh, I'm, I'm sure that there are there are other famous actors in this list as well, um, but the one that jumps out to me is Liam Neeson, um, and he played uh, Dol- Dolty in that uh, original production. In 1980, and then uh, the the kind of continued staging of it uh, uh, kind of moved uh, around. Uh, eventually, it came over to America in Cleveland uh, in the Cleveland Playhouse in 1981, um, and the play was later staged in New York City later that year at the Manhattan Theater Club. Published then, and the rights are held by Samuel French, but then it kind of starts to jump around. It's translated into a number of other languages. It's performed in Belarus in 2009. Um, uh, Most recently, it's had a pretty uh, renowned uh, or important production. Uh, It was produced in 2022 in Ukraine. Uh, kind of as the, or amidst the Russian invasion, um, and also the uh, that was then produced in 2023 or toured uh, that production at Dublin's Abbey Theatre and was performed in Ukrainian and English subtitles. So and that I just see... I, you I, if you if you don't know translations, you may not yet understand the huge significance the of that. But just to yeah. give you a, a hair a hair insight into what we're going to talk about, translations is a play about language about the importance of language to a culture. 
and about how an oppressing colonizing culture eliminates the local culture's language and history as a method of colonization. So you can maybe see the importance of a Ukrainian language production of translations as, you know, in this period in which Russia is about to be, you know, is in the middle of trying to oppress and colonize the Ukrainian people. Yeah, yeah. That, so, so there's definitely that at work. That that as part of the conversation with that particular production. Um, I so so much has been written about as well. The original production. I'm gonna. I will struggle to try to sum it up completely in this conversation. But notably, 1980s in in Derry in Northern Ireland. This play is amidst the troubles. Um, in Northern Ireland, and is a play uh, about the interaction between Irish and English, um, and and so this play definitely was in that conversation as well. There's been lots of conversation both directly to Brian Friel about this. At one point, there was some debates that he engaged with about the play's historicity and what the play is talking about, and it's and it's part in that conversation around the troubles. So this this play is right in the middle of that interaction as well. And as we get into the conversation itself, the characters will speak into that as well, I believe. Um, the other kind of thing of note that I just wanted to give you just a bit of broad context before we get into the specificity of the script is this play is set in Ballybeg, um, which is the same uh, kind of pseudo-fictional county that Dancing at Lunasa is set in, um, uh, still very uh, very based um, in, in, in Brian Fields' experience and in, and in his real-life experience, but this sort of town is invented by him in which to tell real stories in a pseudo real place so so uh just just another connection to dancing at lunasa and the kind of broader works of brian friel as we jump into the conversation on translations and several other of his plays have connections to this same fictional town and it's it's not a totally uncommon thing to do um you may be familiar with writers who do a very similar thing uh stephen king famously you know the the hugely prolific american author has invented two or three like castle rock towns in the northeast East that he sets a lot of his stories in because they allow a specificity of place, uh, even while that place is not specifically technically real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, translations is set um, in in this little town in the middle of uh, the the sort of early 1800s, uh, 1833, as England is uh, in the middle of trying to survey and colonize Ireland. Of course, the long history between those two countries is impossible for us to summarize now. But what you need to know mostly is that the English force has arrived in Ireland and their goal is to survey, to map, and to ultimately change the name of all of these Irish communities to anglicized English names as part of their colonizing efforts in Ireland. They are really the sort of subterfuge is that they are attempting to eliminate the Irish language virtually completely, um, the, the national school that they're building in kind of the background plot of this play. That one of the things that is said about it is that no one is going to speak English, or, uh, Irish rather at the national school. Everyone is going to speak English. Children are going to be taught to speak English and, and encouraged not to speak Irish in their communities or at their homes. 
our play is set in um, this thing called a hedge school. A hedge school is a sort of underground school where uh, people who, who do not have the sort of social benefit of traditional schooling were taught. Uh, they paid a small fee to these hedge school teachers. Um, and so this particular hedge school is in a barn where the hedge schoolmaster, Hugh, lives upstairs with his son, Magnus. And they have a sort of array of different students. Um, Manus is, uh, is the sort of assistant teacher to his father. Also, he is treated sort of like a footman, sort of like a, a, a real kind of go-get-me-coffee in our contemporary cultural language kind of assistant. Um, but he does a fair amount of the teaching himself. Uh, their students are Sarah and Jimmy Jack and Mare and Dolty and Bridget. Um, and then there are other students that show up and don't show up at various times. Um, in the middle of this school is this relationship that becomes central to the play, and that is the relationship between Manus and Mare. And the Manus wants to marry Mare, and it does seem as if that interest is returned to some degree. The problem is that Manus does not have any income or land or really any sort of social position at all. He's the assistant at this, you know, sort of illegally run school, which is not a real position and does not come with any land or any salary. In fact, it is said that his father throws a few shillings at him every once in a while as his sort of pay for all of his work. So that, that marriage is not going to happen, even while Manus is trying to pursue it across the course of the play. Um, Mayor has encouraged him to apply to be the headmaster of the new national school, but his father apparently has applied for that position, and it is a reason why Manus doesn't want it. I'm going to be a little more broad, I think, for the sort of broad course of this play because so much happens. Um, Hugh has another son. Uh, Hugh's wife passed away sometime in the past, um, and so it is just him. And he has two adult sons, Manus, we've already talked about, and Owen is the other son. And the play really gets into gear, the inciting incident, if you will, after we've seen the uh, some sort of versions of the schoolhouse scene, are that Owen comes home. After six years, it's said, he finally comes home from where he's been pursuing um, in Dublin a, a more sort of economically viable life. But he shows up out of the blue and greets everyone with much warmth and affection. And he says, by the way, I have some friends with me. And they say, oh, OK, well, sure, bring your friends in. He says, oh, by the way, my friends are English soldiers and I'm on their payroll. They say, oh, my gosh, you're working for the English military force? And he says, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. They're here to help us. And so he brings in his English, quote-unquote, friends, um, the the captain, uh, Captain Lancey, and then uh, Lieutenant Yolen is how he's referred to it. Nobody calls him lieutenant. In fact, he says he doesn't even think of himself as a lieutenant, but his name is Yolen. And they make a, Captain Lancey makes a little speech where he basically says, we're here to map the Irish countryside. We're surveyors. We have a sort of civil engineering project to map and standardize all these places. This is going to be good for you. It's going to tell you what land you legally own. It's probably going to reduce your taxes. And it shows how much England cares about Ireland, that we are willing to invest these kinds of resources to map and standardize the Irish countryside. And while we're here, we got this guy with us, Yoland. And his job is to take all of these funny, outlandish,
Scottish Irish names that you've given all these silly little places, and we're going to turn them into staunch, real English names. Now, this is where the sort of conceit of the play comes out, because the whole play is written in English other than a few Greek and Latin, because it's a schoolhouse and Hugh is teaching everybody Greek and Latin as well. But the, the play is spoken in English, even while the Irish characters are actually speaking Irish, and we are hearing it as English, and the English characters are speaking English, which we are also hearing as English. So we, the audience, the English-speaking audience at least, understand everything everybody says, but the characters do not understand each other when they are speaking across this language barrier. So Owen acts as translator, and we get our first little bit of this theatrical device employed, because what the Captain Lancey says out loud, the military is here, and this is a military operation to make good on all of England's promises to this young country. Uh, Owen does not translate that accurately to his fellows, and so we in English hear the captain say something, and then we hear in English Owen's translation of that thing, which is not uh, true. And he mistranslates it intentionally to his fellows in Irish. Um, that conceit then runs through the whole course of the play. And the fact that characters speak these different languages and have a hard time speaking across the language barrier, even as we, the English-speaking audience, understand it all, is the central theatrical premise of how the rest of this play is going to unfold. So, uh, the play goes on, and Yoland and uh, Owen get to work on changing all these names. There's a really lovely scene about kind of why things are named the things that they are, and why Owen is helping Yoland. Yoland is starting to fall in love with the Irish countryside, he says. He loves it here. He's falling in love with the Irish people. He wants to learn Irish. At one point, he even floats the idea, maybe I could live here. Um, and Owen seems to have some sort of despair and, and sense of depression about his whole land. He says, "What well, for what? There's nothing here. Why would you want to live here? I, I got out. Why, why do you want to live here? Um, eventually, uh, Manus gets offered a job teaching at a different hedge school and says he's going to take it and wants Mare to go with him. But Mare invites Yoland to come, Yoland the English soldier, to come to this sort of local community dance. Um, we go to this scene where Yoland and Mare have escaped the dance together. Again, she's an Irish person. He is an English person. They escape this dance together and have um, what well, one of the interviews that I listened to, and I think I really agree, calls one of the most truly remarkable love scenes in English drama since Romeo and Juliet. Um, they have a beautiful scene where they try to communicate to each other their depth of feeling and excitement and passion and lust and, and desire for the future for each other, but they can't speak the same language. And they are trying desperately to communicate how they're feeling. Um, and eventually it comes to this kind of heartbreaking moment where Yolan basically says, I'm so in love with you, I want to stay. And she, in seeming agreement, thinking that she understands what he's saying, says, yes, I'm so in love with you, take me away from here. 
And they both think that they've come to the same conclusion. Oh, my gosh, we're going to be together. But they really are talking about totally opposite things. It's heartbreaking. It's beautiful. It's wonderfully written and and, 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 uh, theatrically devised by Brian Friel. Unfortunately, uh, one of the other students, Sarah, who's in love with Manus, and that's sort of the subplot, uh, sees Mare, who who Manus wants to marry, with this English soldier and runs off to tell Manus about that. That ends that scene, and we go to Act 3, where we learn that poor Yolan has not been seen again since that night. And it is strongly implied that some locals, the Donnelly twins that are referred to in another subplot of the play, probably took him out into the sea and killed him. Um, This is bad news because, of course, now the English, who seem so friendly and lovely and helpful and industrious, uh, are going to come with their full military might down on this Irish village and um, raise it to the ground if they do not find out what happened to their English soldiers. So Captain Lancey comes in and makes a proclamation much to that. We're going to kill every livestock. We're going to raise every house. Tell us where this guy is. Uh, And they are no longer friends and neighbors. Now they are true military oppressors marching through fields and destroying crops and and getting in fights with the locals and all this, you know, military oppression sort of situation. Manus, who who does, it seems to me, truly not have anything to do with uh, Yolan's disappearance, it seems, tells us that, yes, I went looking for them after Sarah told me this. I was prepared to kill him, but when I saw them together, I just couldn't. And I tried to speak and say what I felt, but I, I, I just couldn't do it. And so I sort of ran off. Um, and uh, whatever happened to Yolan seems to truly have not involved him. He, however, is going to run um, for reasons, for unbeknown reasons to me, really. That's actually one of my questions of the play, why he is choosing to leave at the end. Uh, his brother Owen, of course, says, if you run, they're going to think you did it. So don't run. But he he decides to. He leaves uh, the, the community for now. Um, and at the end of the play, the students sort of separate because there's going to be trouble. Many of the students say things like, they're not going to raise my house without a fight, um, and they go off, and at the end, uh, Hugh, the, the father schoolmaster, comes back drunk with his buddy, um, and they sort of reflect on the things that have happened to this family, and and, and Owen goes off to... Uh, Owen leaves at the end of the play, too, to go find some of these folks um, in another sort of one of my question marks of the play. Where is he headed? and why that's the big broad strokes of just i i again i can't say enough tremendous play so dramaturgically and structurally sound yeah yeah each of the each of the subplots that under underlay that main plot that you've laid out each of them have rich moments in them we'll see how many of them we get to but i think you've wisely kind of honed in on on especially owen um owen yoland and uh mari as this kind of like group in the middle that is at the center of it because this is a play this is so so brian friel is on the record as saying that translations is a play about language and only about language uh end quote um now he he in other in other situations has said that there perhaps is more afoot than just language but (laughs) (laughs) but but that is that is the kind of a famous quote that friel gave about translations and i think there's some politic in there but there's also i think some truth in there that much of the rest of those themes do stem from the overall umbrella of language as the pivot point of this play and and you and and kind of getting into the weeds of that 
description of like, we have Captain Lancey speaking in English, Owen translating into Irish, Manus and Hugh able to speak English, hearing Owen make a different translation of it, and then Owen feeding back anything that's said from the Irish Gaelic to Captain Lancey in English. That is that is the core of this play, is these opportunities for language to be used to communicate, to be used to oppress to be used to resist, to be used to communicate love, affection, anger, fear, all of these things um, amidst these characters' lives as they collide with each other. Well, and, and it's not just the English, Gaelic, Irish uh, divide where Brian Farrell is doing that thing with language too because there's so many places where characters and their language or lack thereof become isolating them. I think of Sarah, who is one mm -hmm. of the students she has a, a speech disability and so she is like sort of unable to speak in any real meaningful way. In fact, the play opens with a really touching scene of Manus kind of working with her to say, my name is Sarah and again, I, I'm not going to be done praising this play that beginning image of him teaching her to say her name is paid off about four different times in, yeah. in remarkable ways throughout the play and and so she has this inability to speak that leaves her sort of isolated and lonely Manus is able to sort of understand her in a way the other people aren't and when he departs at the end of the play she is put back into isolation and loneliness because the person who can understand her is now gone. So you have that. You have the fact that all of these students in this hay barn are learning Greek and Latin and can, on, on immediate sort of prompting by the headmaster in this little quizzing game they play, stand up and give the root definitions of all of these different Greek and Latin and Gaelic words, which is, I think, one of Brian Friel immediate and sharp ways of pointing out the intelligence, the complexity, the vast treasure of the language that is spoken by these people. And it is, um, they, it, at one point, there's a, there's a great moment where that pays off in the love scene where Myri speaks in Latin, or maybe it's Greek, I can't quite remember, trying to communicate with Yolan because she knows that she doesn't speak her language. And he misinterprets it as just her speaking more Gaelic or Irish. Yeah, yeah. And he says, I don't understand your language. And the audience is like, oh, you do It's not their language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's so many great moments like that another great one that is a kind of extensive scene i think it's act two scene one but it's between uh uh yoland and owen much of that scene is the two of them who do speak passable enough english to communicate with each other and yet there are still things in there that as they so y yoland goes on this journey of like arrives here as the as the british officer and immediately starts to fall in love with the place now some of that is him helicoptering into a summer in ireland as owen points out that there's lots of things about here that he wouldn't like in a different season but he has this sort of romanticized view of the place and falls in love with the place and the people immediately and so he tries to start to learn irish and is trying to like as as much as owen is trying to like rename these places or take to take the Irish names and bring them into English in some way. Um, uh, you have Yoland kind of <laughs> surreptitiously going against that as he falls further in love with the Irish language. But even their communication has these beats of, of, of missed connection. Cause uh, the biggest one is Owen is consistently called Roland by both Captain Lancey and Yoland for 
a large portion of the play. Almost to the end of this scene, he finally has enough of Yolan's like romanticism that he finally says, my name isn't Roland, it's Owen, O-W-E-N. And they have this, this out of that like moment of, of you've been, we've been missing each other this whole time, comes this bout of laughter and connection and further, further relationship between them. So all, all over the place, these, these uh, beats of disconnect over language lead to a different outcome. Sometimes it's it's moments like that where laughter emerges. Other times it's moments of violence, like later on in the play. Um, but always this this misconnection leads to something new as as a result of it. And and the the name misunderstanding too is so it it's such a a delightful in kind of an awful way, but a delightful awful thing because Owen comes in and really. Um, purports not to be equals because of course the military has a chain of commands but but to be on the same team the same mission of improving Ireland with these English fellows that he's brought in and yet uh, his brother who sort of has a, a penchant for pointing out his BS immediately comes over and is like why are they calling you Roland? <laughs> And it's just immediately <laughs> clear that, like, despite all of his posturing as, like, we're, we're buddies, we're, this is great, he's, like, it, maybe afraid is the wrong word, but it would not be good to inconvenience these English powerful fellows with right. his real name. They called him Roland. Whatever. I'm just going to be a Roland. And at one point he even <laughs> says, you know, what does it matter? Roland, Owen, it all refers to the same person, right? That's me. What does it matter? He says, it's only a name. It's the same me. And that, of course, is going to become the sort of, and that's in the very early in the play, because that becomes the mission, right? It's only a name. What does it matter if we change the names of these places? The names don't mean mean anything anyway is, is is sort of Owen's long-standing point. Well, you see what that matters in the fact that these are people, you know, colonizers who are there to uh, pull the, the, the resources, pull the culture, pull the individual beauty of this place into a part of themselves and they are uh, willing to do that with physical violence in the end of the play. And I think that the point is made that this has been a kind of violence all along. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting and strong choice to make Owen the battleground on which that line of thought is fought over. Because... Owen Owen serves the 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 function of being from this place and knowing so much about this place. He knows Gaelic. Um, he knows these people. He knows the stories of this place. Um, but he got out. He got out. He he jumped into the system. He was able to figure out a way to survive. And now he's back with these connections and continuing to survive well um, and trying to serve this purpose. I think in his mind at the beginning of the play, an altruistic purpose. He tells a story of uh, a, a crossroads that is named, I'm going to forget the person's name, alas, um, uh, but, but so-and-so's well um, is, is what the Gaelic translates into. And he tells this long rambling story about how a well that is nowhere really even near the crossroads, hundreds of feet off of the crossroads, was visited by this guy hundreds of years ago because he thought the well was holy and so he washed it every day, he eventually died there and so they named it after him. 
no one remembers this story but me, Owen says. No one remembers this story but me, and so but we still uh, call it this place just because of reasons that nobody knows anymore. And then uh, 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 Yoland has the line that says, but you know the story, and you learned it from someone. You learned it from your dad, and Manus knows it as well, so... These stories are important. It's so interesting to have Owen as a person who's from here be the 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 yeah, the battleground on which is he's as he is, is sharing this, it's Yolan who says, but the story's important, right? And eventually you see that slow progression. I think I think uh Owen goes on quite the journey um towards toward throughout the play as he sees what happens as a result of his kind of line of thought of it doesn't matter what the name is, it's just the place. Um, but he starts to see the consequences of that throughout the play. And I think I, I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on where he ends up as he leaves Jacob, because it was one of the moments that you, you kind of highlighted in your synopsis of like, what goes on with Owen at the end of this play? Where is he going? What does it mean for him? What's his journey been? Um, because I think he does go on a journey. It'll be interesting to see what sort of journey it goes on. No, I, I, I totally agree. And I love that you pointed out that story about the name at the crossroads because it was also one of the moments that was really powerful and that I'll remember too, his his way of telling this story that is the reason for the name and his point being it's named nonsensically. It's named yeah. for something that doesn't even matter. It's not even the real, the well isn't even near the crossroads. And there's this guy a long time ago and nobody remembers. And then as you just pointed, it out Yolan says well but you remember so that's not quite true <laughs> and right, I just that yeah. was like to me that was like a mic drop moment it was like well yeah. <laughs> actually that's not true because you just told me the story so somebody remembers the story and why this thing was named in the way that it was named um uh, Owen to me his his journey is so fascinating because he has a lot on the line. He has really put himself in a position of a, a tough tightrope to walk here. He, he uh, on the one hand, is so, and I think Brian Friel's done a great job layering this character because he so loves these people. His entrance back into the barn after six years is so warm and so uh, he, individual. He knows these people. He, he knows their families. He knows where their houses are. He knows things. He, he so loves these people. And at the same time, it is in his interest to advance this the sort of the mythos of the story of why the English are here. And I think that he has even come to believe it at the beginning of the play, that if we survey the land and map it, and if we put the right names on it, this is going to be better for all of our communities. It's better if we learn English. It's better if we communicate with the whole world instead of with this just little town that we live in. Um, Owen is the one who says um, in the middle of that scene where he and Yolan are going back and forth about the names, Owen says, we're taking place names that are riddled with confusion. Yolan says, who's confused? Are the people confused? Owen says, and we're standardizing those names as accurately, accurately and sensitively as we can. Yoland is the one that says something is being eroded. 
and Owen says, back to the romance again, right? This this picture that you have in your head, Yoland, of these quaint little uh, local folks with their fun names that you have. There were he Owen sees, I think, the problem with his community in a way that an insider can. And at the same time, he is involved in a solution that is not sustainable, that is, that, is, that is violent and painful to that community. And that is what he realizes over the course of the play. Yeah, yeah. And he slowly kind of sees that. He sees the pain of it, but he also sees um, the consequences of it. Because George's disappearance, Yolan's disappearance... Of of the two officers, I think he's closest with with Yoland. Um, he has the most. Yeah, time he, I with think him. he even says that the captain's kind of a a jerk. He he does not yeah. seem to like the captain very much. Yeah, to to the point that when when uh there's there's the the brother sister duel du, duo of Dolty and Bridget, um who show up and to the point when they're being kind of deliberately cagey, like they kind of know what happened to Yoland. He's like. I need to know Yolan's my friend and you're going to tell me. <laughs> um, and so, so, so you know that he's connected with him and you see the consequence or you see the consequence of the, the oppression come out in violence towards Yoland. You also see the consequence of the uh, occupation in Lancy showing up and saying, I will, I will raise this place to the ground until we find Yoland. Um, so you see, you see Owen see those things and make a decision at the end. I, I think his decision is an interesting one because he deliberately says that he's going to, first of all, he's just said goodbye to Manus, who also has an odd leaving. I think his, I, I'll just kind of throw a quick shot at Manus as, as, as we, as we brush by him, as we continue to talk about Owen, I think most of his leaving has to do with have his, his feelings around Mari. It's the only thing that makes sense to me. He can't stay in the community, even though, even though, um, Yoland is now missing, likely not going to return. Mari's kind of betrayal of their relationship to him just makes it too painful for him to stay. So he, he's forced to leave quickly. Um, but anyway, Owen sees him out, even though even though it's dangerous for him to go. And so he has this moment of deciding what way to go. He, and 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 with with uh, the Captain Lancy showing up and and proving uh, the the, ul- the ulterior motives that he's he is uh, uh, here for. Um, I think I think his choice to go and talk to the Dolty to Dolty and and figure out uh, where where the the brothers are, who are kind of the violent brothers in the area is a choice to to say I might be stepping away from this and figure out a, a way to resist what I started trying to support at the start of the play. Yeah, so Dolty leaves at the end of the play after a discussion with Owen about putting together some of the folks in the town to resist the army. Um, and, and Dolty leaves on this line. Give me a shout after you've finished with Lancey. I might know something then. Which even that line is a little. I I I don't have a. I, I don't see through that line very clearly to what it exactly means. After you finished with Lancey, meaning like after you're done being his like page boy, after you're done working right. for him, is that what you mean, or does he mean like after you're done with him? If you if you finished with him, like you finished a meeting that you had with it, like I'm not totally sure exactly what he means by that. But it it seems important because when um when Owen leaves at the end of the play, he says, I've got to go see Dolty Dan Dolty. What about, Hugh asks, and Owen just says, I'll be back soon. 
And so I, I, that, that's a little unclear to me exactly where he's going and why. I think there is a reading of that, that he is actively going to find out the info to help the resistance or the rebellion or the, the, the protecting of their farms, which is just going to lead to violence and death because they're talking about the trained British army is the point that Owen makes. Or, or maybe it means he's going to go try and stop them from doing that or he's going to... I, I don't know exactly where he's going and why other than to think, boy, that seems important. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, it seems like, I mean, if, if that's the choice he makes at the end, I think it's a choice. Uh, I don't know that he would have made it at the start of it. I don't know that he would have taken Dolty's or wanted to go chat with Dolty <laughs> on that evening. Uh, we're, 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 you know, five days earlier, but, but whatever it is, uh, it seems, seems to be, uh, we've watched Owen go on the journey. Uh, he also, the other, the other kind of important prop negotiation piece is he's, had an interesting relationship with his book of names. He's been filling out this book of names throughout the play. And during that last scene, there's a pretty distinct moment where he somewhat frustratedly closes it, puts it on the pile of books and it falls to the floor and he leaves it there. He walks away from it later on. He picks it up because his dad picks it up and he kind of takes it away from him. Um, and is somewhat ashamed of, of what it contains. Um, but, but you also have the sort of leaving behind, of that goal as well of, of his trying to catalog these names. Um, he, he's, he intentionally, at least in a moment of frustration steps away from them. Right. And he, he apologizes for them too. His dad finds them. And when he, he grabs them back and says, I'm going to take this book of names back. And then he says a mistake, my mistake, nothing to do with us. I hope that's strong. And he's referring to the T there. I hope that's strong enough. Um, but that's the other choice that he makes, right? I mean, that one of the structural pieces of the play that's so remarkably sound is that when Owen arrives after having been gone from town, Manus is the one taking care of his father, doing his tea and soda bread and stuff like that. And then at the end of the play, Manus is the one that leaves and Owen is the one who is staying to take care of his father and potentially to take care of the broader town. I mean, that's just brilliant structural work to reverse the courses of those two brothers across the play. Yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, we're, we're, we're starting to narrow in on the end of the conversation. We only have a couple minutes left. I do want to just be sure that maybe, maybe we'll have a couple more little highlights, but one more just shout out highlight focus point on the scene between Yoland and Mari as just an oh. incredible scene. Um, oh just, my God. Gosh, so good. So well written the way that the dance between them happens of trying to communicate, trying to communicate across three different languages that are used. Um, uh, then also the sort of physicality. There's really intention. There's not much blocking notes in this play. It's not of the era of kind of frequent blocking notes, but there's a couple really particular ones about how they distance each from each other and then slowly move towards each other as they find a way to communicate even though they continue to kind of ship in the night some of the things, but the kind of core of their communication is there as they continue to fall in love with each other, as they, as they uh, speak each other's languages, even though they don't understand. 
Yeah, well, and and they sort of think that they understand, right? It comes right. down into this moment of the word always being the end of the word. Yolen says, I would tell you how I want to be here, to live here always with you, always, always. Um, and that word always becomes a sticking point for Myri as she comes back later in the next scene after Yolen has disappeared, and she still doesn't quite know what that word means. It feels like they're close together. They're saying this word always back and forth, but uh, Yolan George has just said, I want to be here with you always. And the scene ends with Myrie saying, take me away with you, George, thinking that she understands. And that's when the kiss happens um, that is unfortunately going to set off the course of events. Um, uh, Hugh sort of uh, heartbreakingly too, when Myrie asks for a translation of that word much later Later in the play, really, I mean, basically the end of the play, says uh, the word always. He says, it's not a word I'd start with. It's a silly word, girl. Right. <laughs> After all that, oh, heartbreaker. Oh, heartbreaking. Come on, come on, Hugh. Get romantic just a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think the other, the other, the other piece of it that uh, makes this play play with tragedy very, very well um, is that, yes, it's sort of, the, the kiss sort of cues off everything and you expect it to, but it's in fact not that that is the, the full tragedy. You see, you see Sarah, you, you, you're expecting, you're, you, Sarah, Sarah arrives and you're expecting her to go tell Manus and Manus to go have a fit and Manus to come and kill George and Manus to come and, and yell at, 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 at Mari and try to like stir something up, but slowly you piece together that it's not that. They didn't all kill each other in the end. It's something else. It's something else worse that happened almost <laughs> that George well, goes off. It's like it's like Romeo and Juliet if one of the two communities had all the military power, uh, you know, in the play instead of them being like roughly equal co-competitors. Right. <laughs> like like what happens is that the two communities close at once. When this moment happens, it's it's really encapsulated nicely, maybe even a little on the nose at the end of the play by Jimmy, who's one, a character we haven't spent a lot of time on and probably won't. But at the very end of the play, he is he's referring to something else, which is the niceness of the writing. But it applies really well to the situation that Myrie's in. He says this is like second to last line of the play. Do you know the Greek word endogymen? It means to marry within the tribe. And the word uh, exogymen means to marry outside the tribe. And you don't cross those borders casually. Both sides get very angry. Right? So this is a play uh, not only about language, but about language and tribes. Tribes in a broader, like, social definition kind of word, right? And what they mean to those communities. As we forewarned, there is so much more we could talk about in this play. So many more different scenes, so many uh, beautiful moments, so many great negotiations, fantastic lines, so much symbolism. The, full, the whole last page of this play is an excellent use of, of Hugh's knowledge of the Aenid and Odysseus to yeah. try to make a comparison between England and Ireland and Rome and Carthage. So much going on. So, so much <laughs> great offstage action, too. Like, here's a... Yeah. Here's a 
a great structural symbolic thing that happens entirely off stage. At the beginning of the play, Hugh is late to school at night. Hugh, the schoolmaster, is late because he is attending the christening of a local baby. At the end of the play, he is late to school because he is attending that poor baby's funeral. I mean, that, that just is like offstage incredible symbolism that just happens right. based on them describing something else. Or a great one, Dolty at the beginning of the play is describing how the English, the Redcoats that he calls them, are out like trying to survey the land with these machines and these surveyor rods. But it's so foggy and they don't know the land very well and he knows the land really well. So he and his uh, you know sort of fellows are out messing with them. So they'll set up a surveying rod and go away to set more up and work with the machine. And while they go away, he and his fellows will slip in and move the posts around so that all their (laughs) measurements are wrong to the point that the English try to take apart the machine because they think it's broken. Right. (laughs) So much, so much good, good stuff. Big, big characters, big goals, all sorts of great scenes. Alas, we're out of time. Um, But we'd love to continue the conversation as we always love to do if there's something in this conversation that you have uh, resonated with or dis- dissonated with. That's not a word. Um, but <laughs> but if there's anything that you want to talk more about within translations, we'd love to be both the people that you talk to about and the community that we get to talk to about these plays. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. And when I say Twitter, I actually mean X, but whatever. Um, and <laughs> you can find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about translations with all of you absolutely if you liked this episode or any of our other episodes of our nearly 11 complete seasons at this point please recommend the podcast to your family your friends anybody you know that likes story scripts theater authors writing anything in that vein i think they'll enjoy this podcast send them our way they can find us at google play apple Podcasts, spotify youtube anywhere else that you find your podcasts or you can like us on facebook where the link to the new episode appears every monday when we publish So until next week when we're talking about another script, I'm Jackson. I'm Jacob. Thanks for joining us for No Script the Podcast. Podcast.